five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, we have a special episode. What are NASA's plans for the first lunar base? Well, in today's Future in Space Operations briefing, we're going to learn what NASA's planning for what they're calling the Artemis Base Camp, which will be located at the Lunar South Pole. We have two speakers that will discuss the Artemis Base Camp plans. Jeff George serves as the Lunar Architecture Lead for the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate at NASA HQ and is a member of the Exploration Mission Planning Office at NASA's Johnson Space Center. Brett Drake currently serves as the Associate Director of the Space Architecture Department for the Aerospace Corporation. The presentation that goes with this talk is available on our website. Listen in. All right. Well, thank you very much, Harley. It's, uh, we appreciate you having us here today. It's, uh, it's a pleasure, Harley, to be on the microphone side of FISA with you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've uh, listened to many really interesting talks, and this will be a, a little bit of a treat for Brett and I to share what we've been up to uh, with you all. Um, Richard, again, good to hear your voice after a long time. And, uh, Dan, uh, we really appreciate the, uh, cat herding that, uh, that you had to go through to get Brett and I here today. Uh, we should all be on page one, uh, of the, uh, PDF that went out with some lovely artwork. Uh, and the title of our talk today is An Early Vision for the Artemis Base Camp. And uh, let me provide a little context before we we dive too too deep here. Uh, Brett and I work with a large team of planners and analysts and technologists across the uh, NASA centers to try and define the first sustained presence on the moon. We have lots of folks working the early missions. Uh, we have uh, a number of visionary folks that for decades that have, have pondered the, the kind of penultimate destination on the moon. But uh, we're sort of uh, shooting for that middle ground here today. Um, our, our focus is slotted after the first few shorter duration flights uh, of two crew for about a week at a time. Uh, but before, uh, and we hope paving the way for the uh, larger, complex, multifaceted bases or, or city complexes that uh, many of us have, have dreamed and doodled of. So uh, if you're expecting to see, uh, you know, that kind of stuff today, uh, think of, think of our, our story today as the early construction check and the machinery to gain that, that first recurring and extended presence on the moon that's going to lead to uh, bigger and better things. So we titled our talk An Early Vision because it is subject to change, of course, uh, both as we refine it and as uh, our mission needs evolve. Uh, we're also not going to bore you with a lot of the uh, sausage making and analysis and debate that goes on in our virtual hallways but we are very pleased to share this kind of big picture sketch with you as things are coming into focus. So uh, a little secret, I actually hate to hear myself talk. Uh, conversations are a lot more fun. Um, I think we have time for, uh, for some conversation, perhaps uh, short questions during the slides as they come up uh, would be fine pending Dan or Harley if that's going to break up our flow. Um, but I think uh, we'll have to. Definitely just fine. The way we usually do it is that if folks have a question, they'll just uh, politely interrupt you so they won't forget the questions at the end, if that's okay with you. No, I think that's great. I just want to make sure I hear them and don't uh, uh, bulldoze right over. So if, I, if I'm missing one, please, uh, please uh, help my attention. Um, okay, and I think what, 
Yeah, and I think we'll have some time afterwards for uh, a little more general uh, discussion. Um, uh, Dan, please be honest on IDH numbers and uh, our time. And I do think we're getting background noise, so perhaps if no one has an immediate question, we can all mute. Very good. Okay, so our cover page is a very nice piece of artwork um, that Cara Latorella uh, helped with here. And uh, you see some of the major elements, uh, system elements that we're going to talk about today, and you see a crew of four which is uh, foreshadowing uh, what we're going to talk about. So why don't we go to page two now. And I mentioned the buildup to the next lunar landing and getting ready for that. Um, already we are commissioning uh, commercial uh launches to the moon of small payloads with uh, science instruments and even with rovers to uh, explore for resources. I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, the space launch system, uh, which recently had its successful green run, and uh, the Orion uh, crew capsule. So we're looking forward to an Artemis One flight, which would be a, an uncrewed test flight of those two very important systems. Now, Artemis II would be the first crewed mission, and that would actually be a voyage about the moon, uh, there and back again, but without a landing. Um, in parallel, uh, we're building the uh, key elements of the gateway system, which is going to provide our, our high ground outpost in the uh, cislunar space. Uh, we're working on the uh, human landing system, which I'll sometimes call lander or revert to HLS, uh, to help us get down to the surface. And then uh, somewhere in the next few years, uh, we will have the first crewed mission to the lunar surface. And as you're probably aware, that's going to be a crew of two coming down from uh, the gateway and uh, perhaps with two crew left behind in the gateway. And uh, they will do that first uh, uh, return landing to the lunar surface. Uh, we may not have it on the initial landing, but soon thereafter we'd like to see a, a mobility aid that uh, may be reminiscent of the, the old lunar rover, but uh, updated. Um, it would be a unpressurized rover able to carry to crew and uh, further be able to operate autonomously when crew is not there and be able to perform a, a range of uh, science and uh, technology and support functions. So now that's setting the stage for our uh, event horizon here. If we'll go to page three, which is our early vision for the Artemis Base Camp. And this is my my who's on first uh, chart. Uh, the Artemis Base Camp is going to support a crew of four um, for approximately a 30-day surface mission, and we may extend that. The uh, time frame that we're looking at, again, after the first uh, few uh, return flights to the moon is the early 2030s. The key system elements, which you can see in this this picture, and we'll talk a little more in later slides, are the uh, lander itself. Um, obviously, we need uh, uh, EVA uh, suits for the crew. Uh, that unpressurized rover to the right of the page, which I mentioned. Um, a pressurized rover, which you can see sort of in the center of the screen. The uh, initial habitat, which would be in upper right. And then, of course, all the supporting logistics and science and technology demos. So the location of the Artemis Base Camp would be about the lunar south pole. And we know there's uh, really um, compelling uh, um, 
resources there, uh, both for sunlight, uh, long periods of uh, continuous insulation, which uh, we would not see equatorial or really many other places on the surface of the moon. And uh, also the uh, volatile uh, water ice resources in the permanently shadowed regions. So two big draws uh, leading us to the South Pole vicinity. And why we're doing this, of course, is to explore the moon, of course. Uh, in doing that, we're also doing uh, discrete things to prepare for Mars. We want to uh, identify and learn how to use these resources that I just mentioned, both insulation and volatiles. Uh, part of our, our NASA mission is to inspire and, and reach out to the public. And also, uh, as part of the Artemis Base Camp, we want to lay the groundwork for international and commercial partnerships, both in the implementation here, but also in um, laying the groundwork for what comes uh, after this. Uh, Jeff, this is Harley. I've got a quick question here. Um, I yes, take sir. it from the uh, – I uh, take it from this slide that Artem the Artemis Base Camp is not – Force Artemis 4. That is, it's not the immediate follow-on to the, the the slide that you had before. It will be, it will come when the technology is developed, uh, when the capabilities are developed, and so on. So there's an unspoken Artemis 4, 5, 6, whatever, before the base camp. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. It may be more than two. It it may be a few. It may be a handful. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's not not too far off. This is not the uh, the kind of uh, fantasy vision off to the right. These are the the things that we believe within budget and schedule are reasonable for us to do. So again, that's why this not a, a lunar base. This is a, a handful of supporting elements that are going to allow us to, you know, extend our stake on that, uh, that week or so that the lander itself uh, would allow. Great. Good. Thank you. So, yeah, absolutely. So early early 2030s and however many flights in between. <laughs> uh, a few are a handful, but not too many. Okay, so let's go to the next page, which would be four. Um, and it's Joe Tanner with a respectful interruption here. Sorry. Uh, yes, sir. Observing the universe and the local space environment from a unique lo location. I've seen that uh, mentioned a number of times, but can you clarify what that really means? You know, that uh, would be a, a great question for uh, Dr. Tim Lawrence, who I believe uh, briefed folks a, uh, uh, a few few weeks ago. So I might, if you don't mind, refer you to that package, which should be on the FISO site. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Because that's going to require some sort of observation instrument. Uh, that cannot be just human observation, obviously. Yeah. And that may be one of the longer-term um, activities and perhaps not something happening uh, right in the in the early 2030s. Okay, thanks. Yeah, sure. Brett, any, anything to add to that thought? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, we've talked about, you know, the far-side-type missions, you know, to do, you know, radio-silent-type things, to do astronomical observatories, those sorts of things, but those are – they're nothing concrete, but it provides an opportunity. Very good, which is actually a good segue to chart four, which is a uh, big picture of the science objectives. And uh, I, I can't go much deeper than this or I would get myself into trouble. But, uh, you know, the, the major science objectives of Artemis are to understand planetary processes. Uh, my favorite, to understand uh, the character, the origin, the nature of the volatiles at the pole, um, interpreting the impact history of the Earth-Moon system, which, which has always fascinated me that the moon is this silent sentinel and witness of the, the prior history of the solar system. Um, and as part of that is uh, understanding the, the history of the sun and uh, our astronomical environment. Um, observing the universe from the unique location that was just mentioned, um, conducting experimental science in this environment, 
And then uh, a key one for Brett and I is uh, investigating, understanding, and designing uh, means to mitigate the risks of exploration, both uh, continued exploration on the moon, but also uh, getting ready to go to Mars. So let's go to the next chart, which should be five, and is titled Artemis Surface Technology Objectives. So this is a second bucket of uh, rationale and things we're doing uh, on the moon and as part of the Artemis Base Camp. Uh, a key one is in-situ resource utilization. Uh, many, many of us know that as ISRU. So all the technologies and perhaps early demonstrations, not yet commercial uh, um, commercial uh, production, but at least the uh, demoing the technologies for uh, finding resources, collecting them, processing them, storing them. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about volatiles, but, uh, again, the sunlight is another important resource. Uh, the ability to see and communicate with Earth directly is a resource. And then, of course, we have all of this lovely regolith and material that can be used. Uh, surface power technologies is another uh, key area. Uh, we want to take advantage of that uh, persistent sunlight for long periods with uh, solar rays to harness that. Um, we will have uh, – we may have – six months or more of continuous sunlight, depending on uh, the location, but uh, we will have periods of uh, shadow, and so we're going to need energy storage technologies like advanced batteries, um, perhaps fuel cells, and to really open up the moon and uh, sustain a, a perhaps larger uh, foothold about the South Pole, uh, nuclear power technologies are going to be very important, just as they are at Mars. Uh, dust mitigation technologies, uh, there's a difference between uh, gray moon dust and red Mars dust, but uh, learning how to deal with them and overcome the uh, issues that the Apollo astronauts ha uh, had is going to be uh, very important for our sustained presence and operation. Uh, of course, we're in a very extreme environment. Um, in some ways, it's a little nicer than uh, equatorial moon. Um, you're probably uh, familiar that the uh, the thermal environment there in the in the sunlight at noon can be extremely hot and then um, extremely cold at night. Now, at poles, we actually have sort of a moderate average uh, climate, if you will, uh, compared to equatorial. So that's nice as long as we're sort of above grade. Uh, but a lot of these volatiles are, of course, in these um, shaded regions, which are far colder than equatorial. So that brings its own challenge and set of uh, tools and approaches to actually um, access and explore those areas where the volatiles will be. Um, access technologies, uh, we place a, a big presence, obviously, on the EVA capability, but also mobility, um, which is a, a big force multiplier to get us away from the, the landing side and the, the initial habitat to, to open up um, the South Pole region. And uh, hand in glove with ISRU is learning how to excavate and, and do construction there. So that's another part of the uh, – the uh, enabling early work that we see happening as part of the Artemis Base Camp. Now, if we'll go to page six, this is kind of a third major bucket of, of objectives and rationale for uh, that we see defining the Artemis Base Camp, and that is getting ready for Mars. So there's not a um, uh, coincidental uh, mapping between our lunar architecture and the, the means we, we feel we need to go to Mars. And so um, many of the systems and the operations and the uh, lessons learned on the moon, we want to translate directly to Mars. In fact, um, 
I've always felt uh, the most important use of the moon with respect to Mars is as a a proving ground, not not a test bed for Mars technologies, but an actual uh, uh, proving ground. So as much as possible, we've tried to make the lunar systems directly applicable um, to Mars. So uh, you can see with the gateway, we're going to get experience with long durations and zero gravity um, after the the uh, uh, a couple of steps in the gateway with the transit hub on board, and that's going to be very uh, reminiscent of uh, our, our voyage in our Mars, in this case, nuclear electric propulsion vehicle in upper right. Uh, crew size, we're working uh, or thinking four and four for both of those. Uh, mobility on the surface with that pressurized rover. Um, power technologies, again, uh, the surface vision power is perhaps even more important for Mars than, than the moon. Uh, ISRU technologies, uh, a little different flavor of resource and uh, core technologies, but there's quite a bit of overlap uh, in terms of storage and, and um, some other chemical processes. Uh, learning how to work in partial gravity and then uh, working hand-in-glove with crew and autonomous and, and uh, robotic systems. So, if we can go to the next chart. By the way, this feels kind of like book club. This is this is fun. Um, so this uh, is Jeff? <laughs> Jeff? Yes. Hi, this is Chris Gilbert. Sorry to butt in. Um, could you go back to page five, uh, page six for a moment? Um, That's the moon to Mars exploration? Yes. Looking at the, the exploration elements on the left-hand side, um, have you made any kind of, of um, rough decisions about how you're going to deliver them to the lunar surface? Yeah, that's certainly in work, and um, we know at the small end, we already are off and running with this uh, CLIPS program, which is going to deliver smaller payloads, um, tens of kilograms, hundreds of kilograms, perhaps a little more. We know if, at the extreme end, uh, if we have a human-scale lander, uh, we understand that something in that class is also going to be good for delivering uh, heavier payloads like the surface habitat. So we sort of have both ends pegged and a little understood. Um, and one of the things we're talking about now is that middle you're still there? Yes. Are you able to hear me? Uh, you dropped out for a minute or two. Oh, sorry about that. What was the last thing you heard? Um, you were saying about um, – uh, I forget what you were saying. I'm sorry. <laughs> let, let me summarize because I probably went long there. But we understand the small end and the large end. The small end, we're already um, commissioning uh, uh, landers and uh, launch vehicles commercially to land payloads on the order of tens of kilograms or hundreds of kilograms. Um, we know the human lander, uh, if uh, something in that class is used for cargo delivery, that we can get uh, a number of tons to the surface. So that would allow the heavy end of the payload, like the habitats and pressurized rovers. Right, and understand. Then, yeah, and then there's probably a range of things in the middle that could be covered by one or the other or perhaps a new solution. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah, there'll be a challenge with payload volume as well until we get larger payload fairings. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's a, that's a case uh, where uh, the propellant technology actually could, could come into play. The, uh, the higher performing uh, propellant may not be the the most dense propellant and most easily packageable propellant. So there's lots of uh, fun trades to be explored there. Okay, so I think we should be on page seven now, which is the uh, core systems and vehicles we envision. So on the upper left, we have our transportation systems, which we've 
we've talked about. Uh, of course, it all starts on the ground uh, with the uh, ground processing systems. Uh, the space launch system is, is our core super heavy booster. The Orion uh, spacecraft is how we get crew from Earth to the lunar vicinity and back. Uh, we need that lander to uh, take us the rest of the way down to the surface and back up. The uh, gateway in upper right is an important waypoint for us. Um, by the way, I have some one-pagers on some of these, so I'll, I'll talk in a little more detail on some of these elements. Uh, of course, um, uh, advanced uh, EVA uh, capability for the crew, that, uh, that lunar dune buggy uh, I mentioned, the pressurized rover, which allows the crew to explore long ranges and have a, a small living volume to support them. Um, the initial uh, habitat, uh, power systems, and of course the, the various science and ISRU and technology demos, which uh, would will be a little out of scope to get into that uh, detail today. So let us go to page eight. Now the gateway is going to be a uh, a very important waypoint, like I said for a few reasons. Uh, it's in the lunar vicinity. Um, it provides a uh, capability for crew to um, operate uh, above the Van Allen belts. So we're getting into a little different uh, environment for the crew in terms of radiation and isolation from home that is going to uh, help us on our little little dotted line towards Mars. And um, in particular, it's uh, one of the things we hope to learn from um, visits to Gateway is to extend the, uh, the crew's exposure to microgravity prior to landing back into a gravity well. So, um, uh, so yeah, with, with that in mind, uh, we do want to understand um, the, uh, you know, the effects of going from nothing to a, a, a fifth or a third G. Uh, we have a lot of data from space station, but it's going all the way to, to one G. So, um, so that's the gateway. Let's go to the next page. And landers are, of course, a very important part of this, and we have three teams that have been off and running with their own unique approaches um, to landing uh, crew on the moon. I'm, I'm very pleased with the diversity of these uh, different ideas here. Um, early on, of course, this would be uh, all we have, and so it would need to support two crew for durations of, of the order of a week or so. Um, Brett and I have little little different needs by this early 2030s timeframe. We need to get four crew down, um, and then the lander needs to remain um, on station for uh, 30 days or more until we're ready for our, our ride back home. So little little different requirements set, but hopefully in, encompassed by uh, similar solutions. We go to the next page, which is titled Unpressurized Rover. Of course, here the objective is uh, to provide uh, mobility for the crew to, um, number one, uh, get a little farther away from the lander. But um, a, a really key thing that I didn't appreciate until talking to, to some of our astronauts is that there is a, a huge efficiency factor to having even this small uh, unpressurized rover, because it's very, very taxing to get out a, a few kilometers, and then the way we have to plan the missions for contingencies is you have to start far away and then be working your way back, so that if you you get into trouble, um, you're that much closer to home. So this is actually a huge efficiency uh, a boon for the crew, able to, able, enabling them to cover lots of ground and um, access uh, a lot more uh, targets of, of science or, or exploration. Um, we envision it being uh, teleoperable and um, 
economy capabilities from HLS, from the gateway, and, and certainly from Earth. Um, it's going to give us the ability to traverse from uh, one landing. Well, let me let me restate that. Um, if we are landing uh, at different locations from year to year, uh, we would like this uh, unpressurized rover to be able to sort of find its way over the course of of, uh, of months to wherever the new landing site is going to be. And uh, of course, uh, it's we'd like it to interface with uh, science instruments and payloads. And um, it will, since it's going to be left there, um, need to be able to survive uh, periods of eclipse all on its own. If we can go to the next chart, number 11, pressurized rover. Um, this is the, the much larger brother of that. Uh, to support a crew of two for 30 days um, in a pressurized uh, uh, habitat. Uh, this is going to allow them to sort of cut the uh, the springs a little bit and be able to uh, range uh, many kilometers away from the, the lander or the Artemis base camp and uh, the uh, crew is not going to have to drive back <laughs> at the end of the workday. Um, so uh, there, there may be suit ports, uh, so modified space, space suits where we don't have a big airlock here and it's uh, waste of, of uh, cabin pressure and energy, but a means where the suits would actually uh, plug into hatches and the crew would, in a, in a shirt sleeve environment, be able to crawl in and out of the uh, space suit without the, uh, the mass or the volume of, a, uh, of an airlock. Um, let's see, it is, has a, a very high energy density uh, on board for mobility and um, also solar arrays to take advantage of the abundant insulation um, while it's parked for sure and uh, perhaps while it's driving as well. Need to worry about dust and radiation protection, um, especially if we are a ways off from the base camp and we uh, envision a 15-year overall lifetime so that we can get several missions out of it. Do you, you think you need to have two of them for um, rescue or breakdowns or something like that? Or certainly you'll be out of walking distance probably, right? Yeah. Now, um, so let me say we're starting with one. And so that is the reference that we're talking about today. Um, we that that does provide some constraints on range because there's only one. Now we have the LTV as a possible contingency. So part of our our mission conops is that if we're uh, sort of sort of uh, at at the far end of our our leash, um, the LTV might be there for a uh, a contingency return back to the the habitat or the lander. Now, you bring up a very good point, though, um, in our analysis. If we have two of these pressurized rovers, it really opens up the uh, the range of operations um, about the base camp. And so that is a, a something I would love to see, but that is that's starting to build that next level of uh, of capability in, uh, in uh, down mass. How does this, Dallas Inhofe, how does this compare with what we've seen in the press in Japan? Is it is it is it the same in terms of concept, or is that is that a parallel effort? Um, so this is on that? this is our our concept of what we think we need. Um, Japan is uh, in discussion with us to perhaps provide this rover this capability for us. So in, in a sense, I'm showing you our need, and the things you're seeing from JAXA is one um, uh, supplier of that. So, so, yeah, it's it's okay to be mapping them in your brain. They are related. That's a good question. Um, any other questions on the pressurized rover? Uh, Jeff, if you have this pressurized rover with all these capabilities, do you really need a fixed habitat as well? This is another interesting, very interesting question. And, of course, we've done 
different permutations in our architecture of what capabilities we need, what combination, what number, and the uh, the capacity they allow us in terms of range and um, persistence. So um, that is that is not a a invalid uh, approach. Um, perhaps in another presentation we could talk about the. Uh, uh, what these different combinations allow, but we do feel the habitat is important for its own right um, because it's uh, the, the this rover is is since it is a mobile platform, it's kind of constrained in terms of of resources and volume and mass. So there are a lot of things we we need that we can't do very well here in in the in its limitations. For example, uh, doing EVA maintenance and repair. So that's something um, we would see happening in the habitat. Um, the habitat is also a little more uh, not luxurious, but you know it's not quite as um, uh, stressful of a, a living environment for longer periods of time. And uh, we, we kind of see a division of labor in exploration that um, the long range exploration would happen with two crew in uh, the, the uh, pressurized rover here. And, and by the way, Brett will, will uh, uh, talk more on this in a bit. Uh, and the two crew based out of the habitat doing important local science and even IVA science as well with more, more payload, more volume and more energy. Okay, thanks. So Jeff, this is this is uh, Scott Howe at JPL. Um, just curious about the uh, foundational habitat. Is the current thought to just have a single habitat, or uh, I know in, in all of our previous studies, like for uh, constellation and uh, et cetera, we were looking at uh, habitats that could be carried and docked together to create uh, larger and larger volumes. What's the current thoughts on this? Right. So Scott is asking us to turn the page to page 12, which is the uh, surface habitat. And um, Scott, that is a that is a great uh, um, architecture. It's one I like. Um, and in fact, you may remember us talking about that uh, perhaps year before last. So where our, our thinking has sort of evolved is uh, focusing on this um, this construction shaft, as you will, and a a self-contained um, initial capability. So we've we've sort of cut the strings, uh, at least for this first element, to the connecting lots of multiple ones. I think that is though what would be the next step for expanded habitats and a. And uh, I will make up the example of an international laboratory or expanded crew quarters. I think um, what you just described is, is how we would do that with uh, connecting um, modular uh, pressure vessels and modules for different expanded capability. Sound good? Yeah, thanks. That's uh, that's kind of what I was uh, thinking. We are. Looking at different offload capabilities for taking large modules off the landers, and uh, just kind of want to know where that goes on the timeline. Mm -hmm. So that's if this is early 2030s, this snapshot in time, that would be the things happening to the right of that in, in terms of time frame. I won't yeah. say how many years, but uh, yeah. Yeah, this is Dallas again. How do you rationalize a 30 to 60 day capability when Orion has a 22 or 25 day maximum and a, an SLS is like a one, one flight a year kind of operation? Is that a gotcha question? Pardon me? Is that a gotcha question? Are you no, not really. I mean, yeah. why do we need no. 60 days if we can't stay there? Right. I'll let uh, Brett back me up here, but I believe that's the the crude um, uh, lifetime, and uh, there's another duration that we keep track of, which is sort of the the, the uh, uncrewed shelf life of the vehicle. So the crew will be in there for the ride out uh, to Gateway and for the ride back from Gateway, but it would be docked on uh, docked onto the Gateway for. Uh, perhaps a number of months in between. So there's two different um, 
uh, timeouts that we have to worry about. Yeah, that, that's that's right. There's there's still a 210 day, you know, dormant operations requirement where when they arrive to dock to other systems providing attitude control and power and things like that, that um, um, it's it's um, it can be used later for the end of the crew mission. So as long as it's up to a gateway and the gateway's providing some of those functions and everything should be okay. That's the strategy now. Okay, thanks. Yeah, this is Mark Lachlan again. Um, this uh, habitat would be much more valuable since the the crew would be a small percentage of their time in EDAs because of the low pressure in their suits and much more of their time in the habitat. They've got to have uh, laboratories so they can evaluate samples for prioritize samples for return or do other science. Um, uh, you would think that would be absolutely required. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's it's really again two different uh, uh, complementary capabilities between the habitat and and the pressurized rover. So to expand on on uh, what you just said, uh, this is sized for a, a crew of between two and four. Uh, perhaps nominally two for long periods and maybe four uh, in a pinch or with uh, additional um, outfitting and, uh, and logistics. Um, a 30 to up to maybe 60-day habitat, uh, uh, sorry, uh, stay time is what we're designing for. And then, of course, uh, we want that capability to be there for 15 years so that we can uh, reuse that. Um, this scenario has an airlock uh, so that we can get those two guys and even the other two guys uh, in and out for suit maintenance and, and to do EDAs. Uh, this is a self-contained element with its own uh, onboard power. You can see the solar array, uh, vertical solar array up to the top and, and radiators. Uh, and this would also be uh, a key communication hub for surface assets. And so with that, I think uh, our next chart, Brett is going to take over, and he's going to show us uh, in, in more detail the, the mapping to Mars. Uh, if, I, if I may, this is Peter. Um, the, the question on the, the, the habitat and the rover. Are you foreseeing a, a, a 0.3 uh, pure oxygen environment or a, a uh, one-bar nitrogen-oxygen environment for, for, the, for the two of them? That's, that's under trade and debate. It is definitely not a, a one-Earth atmosphere with our mix. It would be something uh, lower in pressure and more, more oxygen-enriched. Thank you. Yeah, yeah so when, when we um, <clears throat> want to facilitate quick EVAs, we want to get lower pressure, so something around 8.2 PSI with a 34% partial pressure oxygen is what we're really looking at. Um, like Jeff said, there's still trades, there's physiological trades, there's material trades and implications of flammability and things like that. So that's kind of what we're, we penciled in right now. We're going to continue to do the studies and trades around that. Copy, thank you. And so let's let's move to page 13, and Brett now is going to get us excited about how this is helping us get to Mars and also uh, tell us more about the team he leads, which is focusing in on the, the concept of operations and, and timelines for what actually happens um, during that 30 to 60 days on the surface. Okay. So, you know, thanks, Jeff, for kind of setting the table. Um, so the question is, how, how from the strategic and mission context do we, you know, use all these systems? Um, and in our formulation, there's really three major objectives that we're really trying to drive towards, like Jeff talked about earlier, you know, conducting the scientific exploration of the moon, you know, synergistically with humans and robots. Um, so that's, like Jeff talked about, long-range mobility, routine access, things like that. There's trying to continue to enhance our capabilities, to understand um, and prove that humans can live and work in remote environments for long periods of time, so that sustainability aspect. And then there's that whole theme of um, proving operational concepts and systems and reducing risk for future Mars missions. And where and when each one of these objectives is accomplished is kind of a 
you know, a la carte kind of thing. We dial that in as we can, and we assess how we're meeting each of those strategic objectives as we go along. Um, so this chart, you know, when you're looking at how lunar missions can prepare us for Mars, you know, we know the lunar environment's different than Mars. Um, everything we've looked at in these past studies related to this, we know that there's unknown unknowns that creep up with any mission, and, you know, doing missions to the moon will drive out different characteristics that we can use to then help reduce our risks for Mars and prove our operational concepts. Um, so we see that you know, the, the lunar missions are, are a viable aspect and step in that in that process. Uh, if you look at the left-hand side of the chart, there's there's a series of things that, that can be conducted in orbit that feed forward to Mars. Uh, things like, well, we know Mars mission, you can't launch an all-up Mars mission like we did Apollo on a single launch. Uh, the energy required, the time's required. It's going to require multiple launches. We're going to have to aggregate these Mars transportation systems together, uh, most likely refuel them, transfer propellants and commodities. So doing those types of operations with the Gateway, uh, with the HLS, um, all those things help buy down risk, perfect those techniques, understand those concepts that will feed forward to Mars. Um, you'll see in a little bit, Jeff kind of talked about it a little, that um, um, operating systems in long in, in this deep space environment for long periods of time, understanding the human system behavior, um, and shaking down the Mars transport, transportation systems and the habitation systems. So if we take a Mars transit habitat, attach it to the gateway, we've got a capability where we can support crews for long periods in this remote environment, and kind of shaking down our systems, proving our technologies, before we commit to a Mars mission, because as it shows in the middle, once we start on our way, soon after you leave Earth orbit, depending on your transportation system, but you lose your ability to quickly return to Earth. So the crew has to survive for long periods of time once they leave. Um, so understanding the system behavior, how you maintain them, how you, how you, uh, the reliability of those systems is, is crucial, and the system missions can prove, uh, can help with that tremendously. Um, in terms of orbital operations, uh, we envision using at the moon this for the gateway. We're talking about these near rectilinear halo orbits. Those are a family of elliptical orbits around the moon, um, seven to nine days in terms of period. Well, at Mars, we're talking about the same type of elliptical orbits for parking orbits. Um, and then we describe those in terms of souls or a, a Mars day as a soul. So between one soul and five souls, maybe even 10 souls at Mars, very loose orbits around Mars. So understanding how you navigate, how you rendezvous and dock in those orbits, those are elliptical orbits. I've never really been done before with humans. So understanding, perfecting those techniques that the moon can feed forward to Mars. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this aggregation, refuel, resupply. So how commercial entities play into that role, you know, drive down our costs and provide more robust capabilities of having multiple, multiple vendors can help feed forward to Mars. And then there's this whole idea of crew health and performance. Transits out to Mars are going to take, you know, many months to a year. So how does the human body behave for those long periods of time in the deep space environment? How do we uh, – we're learning a lot from the space station, um, but there are concerns about getting outside of the magnetosphere and the combined effects of radiation and, and the zero-G actually, actually exacerbating things. So um, the gateway and the Mars and deep space transportation habitat system can help provide capabilities there. Hey, Brett, um, this, yeah. this is Scott uh, from JPL again. Um, I, I'm familiar with some of your previous studies on uh, using artificial gravity for mitigation, you know, health, and, and, and et cetera. What's the current thought on that? Is there is that still in the trade space, or where is that going? Um, it's it's really kind of on the shelf right now, Scott. Um, you know, artificial gravity. It's one of those combined systems where it really impacts the vehicle design, your operations. Um, and if it's if it's the nominal mission mode where the crew is going to be in this environment for the mission duration, we're going to need to simulate that and certify it for the crew operations, which means we need a research facility to simulate that so that we can certify it. Um, so it adds a lot of cost to the architecture up front. So what we're trying to do is can we construct these missions? Do we have human health mitigation effects um, and protocols in place to mitigate all those human health effects um, sufficiently with zero G. And the data right now says 
it looks like we do. I mean, they've come a long way in terms of things like mass muscle atrophy, bone deep calcification. Um, there are some combined effects of, you know, the, the, the intracranial pressure types of things um, that are still raising issues. But right now, we don't think that we need artificial gravity. We're trying to avoid it, but um, that's always been talked about as an option. Um, but it's still, um, yeah, like I said, it's our, our, our notional mission right now is a zero-G transfer from Mars. Okay, thanks. So over on the surface side, you know, the spacesuit advancements, um, you know, crews when they're walking around the surface, you know, they're carrying a spacecraft on their on their back, you know, power, calm, life support, everything. So um, improving those spacesuits, lower, um, lower mobility aspects, um, ease of maintenance, um, having them lightweight because you get to Mars, you get 3HG. Um, so having lightweight systems, how do you repair those systems? So lunar systems, lunar missions can really feed into that. Um, as Jeff talked about, mobile mobility, getting out from the out um, from the uh, landing site, routine exploration as far as we can safely is a key enabler for these missions. Um, so again, lunar missions can help prove some of those systems and characteristics. Um, planetary protection is something that you know we recognize the environments are different between the moon and Mars, uh, but some of the protocols and techniques that we use on the moon kid before to Mars. So we're continuing to um, Derived towards those those concepts as well, and a good example there is the incorporation of supports, as Jeff talked about, um, on the pressurized rover. Um, that's that's one method of keeping a lot of dust, a lot of contaminants out of the living volumes, and so um, so we're driving those types of concepts early on in the lunar architecture so that we can prove them out for Mars missions. We don't envision Mars exploration occurring without robotic human interactions and collaboration. So proving those techniques on, on Mars or on the moon for Mars is, is a key aspect. And then we'll talk about in a little bit the human resilience. Um, as, as you know, Scott just asked, asked earlier about artificial gravity, um, if the crew spends many months to a year in zero-G transferring out to Mars, when they land on the surface, um, they're going to be, you know, zero-G adapted, and it's going to take them a while to readapt back to a um, gravity environment. So how do we protect the crews for those types of operations is key. So to go on to the next chart, chart 14. Um, Jeff already talked about this. I'm not gonna spend more time on it since we're getting close to the end of our time here. So why don't I, I skip the key that, that message there is the systems that we're flying to the moon, we're trying to make them as Mars forward as we can and map them so that we're driving out those operational concepts and those mission systems um, to the greatest extent that we can. Hey, now, Brad, I, I Brad, this is Harley. Uh, Jim, we're coming up to the top of the hour. We own this, uh, this line 24-7, so you certainly can run over a bit. Okay, thanks, Harley. Is there another question on the line? That was Jeff. I was just going to say if there's some other points on this chart, um, I, I think we can go a little over. Um, before jumping to the CONOPS. Um, back on chart 14. Um, now, I think we've hit most of these. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the long durations in zero-G, one way we, we look at um, providing that capability to simulate the Mars mission is a combina combination of the gateway and the deep space transport uh, habitat, which we would use potentially for Mars. So combining those systems together, provides us a platform to support crews for long durations in this remote environment, again, to simulate Mars transit. Um, we don't envision, you know, going straight to a Mars class type transit, but gradually building up so we understand our protocols, understand the human behavior, um, and map those in there gradually as, as the missions go along. Uh, crew size is an important thing uh, for these missions, so we're trying to right size both the lunar architecture and the Mars architecture and how we formulate things to make sure that that um, all the tasks that we're asking the crews to do um, on Mars, that we can simulate those on the moon to understand uh, what we're asking the crew um, as a function of time and their capabilities. Um, so that helps us understand, you know, what we do on the moon helps us understand um, how they'll feed forward to mitigating the risk and actually being able to accomplish those Mars missions. Um, now, the key aspect here is, as Jeff talked about, the vision surface power, you know, power generation is a key aspect. 
Um, it's, it's really been shown over studies over the years that it's really kind of an enabler for Mars missions uh, because of the distance and dust storms and things like that. Um, vision surface power is really a key enabler for Mars missions. So demonstrating that on the moon, the system's behavior um, and robustness is really key. We're trying to design this lunar system so they're not completely dependent upon that system up front. Um, from a redundancy perspective, you always like to have redundancy in failure modes, um, so you're not completely dependent on one system if it goes down. Um, but demonstrating the interaction of those systems is key. Um, so why don't we go ahead and to the next chart, chart 15, and let me kind of walk through um, what this notional mission looks like for the Artemis Base Camp. Again, this is this is kind of midway in the missions. It's not the early Artemis missions where we're demonstrating and rehearsing, you know, a human lunar return, um, short stay missions where the crew is basically just living out of a lander. Um, but it's not all the way up to full, you know, city on Mars on the moon. It's it's kind of the first longer term mission where we're demonstrating some of the early Mars concepts on the moon. And so for this, you see that's the, what we call the street chart associated with it. Um, as I mentioned, it's, you know, Jeff talked about this is the South Pole. It's in the, you know, the mid-2030s, time, time early to mid-2030s. Um, the date's still subject to change, so we're not really focused on a specific date, but just kind of give you a, a, a feel for kind of the time frame we're talking about. Um, and for this mission, we've assumed that the capabilities required for the mission are already in place. So, for instance, these unpressurized rovers, pressurized rovers, the habitat, um, they've had either been previously deployed robotically um, or deployed robotically with, with previous crews, um, checking them out, facilitating them, getting them up and running. So it's kind of, we've kind of gotten past that initial setup. So the question is, okay, given these systems are on the ground and, and operating, how do we use them? So keep that in mind that we've pre-deployed all of our cargo, all of our systems, there are them waiting for the crew. So basically, the mission starts off where we, we uh, send four crew to the gateway with SLS and Orion. They get on the gateway, um, and it's kind of a combination of the gateway, maybe deep space transport uh, habitat at the same time. And that's, their, that's where they would live for extended periods of time. Um, could be, we show notionally here, 30 days. Uh, but from a human research perspective, they'd like to get up to 105 days, maybe 180 days, again, to to get a better simulation of a Mars transit and how humans um, operate in those types of environments and our protocols associated with that. So the gateway deep space transport um, combination give us that platform to simulate the Mars transit type of, uh, of aspects of the mission. Sometime during that, that phase of the mission, we would deliver the HLS, the lander, to the combined gateway um, space transport habitat um, combination. So that's the delivery of the human landing system. Um, that could be a fresh delivery. That could be um, a resupply of a reusable system. It's whatever the HLS system and partners have come up with at that time. But, but basically, the HLS would be ready during that phase of the mission. Um, it wouldn't commit the crew until we certify that the surface systems are good to go and HLS is good to go. And then we would commit to the next phase of the mission, which is actually landing the crew. So before the crew lands, as I mentioned, we verify all the systems are good to go. We uh, transition the gateway um, deep space habitat into a quiescent mode because there's gonna be no crew on because this, for this notional mission, all four crew go to the surface. So we button it up, get it ready for uncrewed ops. Um, descend and land on the surface in the HLS. Um, since we have simulated a, at least a portion, portion of the Mars transit, the crew will be ZRG adapted. And so upon landing, um, they'll safe the HLS vehicle, uh, get the call of authority to proceed with the surface day of the mission. If things don't look good, they'll punch back up to orbit. But if things look good, then they will transition to a surface day. And for that, they will do some minor reconfiguration of the habitat for surface operations, get out of their pressure garments, things like that. Um, and that would expect to be a long, decent landing day, so they'll probably switch over to a sleep period. Um, the next phase is where they're acclimating to a gravity environment. Um, they've Again, we've simulated this zero-g transfer, so they need some time to acclimate back to a gravity environment. 
that's still a big unknown, and we're working with our human research counterparts to define what that period of time is. Um, hopefully, it's as short as possible, maybe a day or so. Could be several days. Um, but that's an important key characteristic because it drives the capabilities of the HLS system because that's where the crew will be living during this acclimation period. Um, crews may do some quick little easy EVAs. Um, you know, getting the crew ambulatory can help with their recovery to gravity environment. Um, but the, the key thing is that we're not asking the crew to be, do anything critical, uh, nothing mission critical until they're certified to go EVA. Once that occurs, then we enter into this transition to surface phase. And, and in this, as, as Jeff mentioned, it's basically it's what we call a two-by-two two exploration strategy, where two crew would um, inhabit the, the surface habitat and two crew would inhabit the pressurized rover. Um, so what they do is um, those, those systems have already been um, on the surface. So the first thing the crew will do is get back in them and certify them for operations. Uh, so the habitat, you know, turn on the lights, turn on the coffee pot, make sure everything's operational, operating the way you expect it. Uh, pressurized rover, um, again, make sure it's up and functioning, take it on a little test drive, make sure everything's good to go. Uh, once we've gotten to that phase, then we've, we've made the global assumption that the previous crews have left some supplies in the vehicle. So the crews um, don't have to transfer logistics right away. They can get into vehicles and have some supplies to live off of. But then after that period, we need to go retrieve logistics that have been pre-deployed on cargo landers. Um, so the rover crew would use their rover and the unpressurized rover to drive out to where the cargo landers have landed in a landing zone. Um, retrieve those logistics, first apply the pressurized rover with logistics, get it up and running, and then um, transfer those logistics over to the habitat to then supply the habitat. Um, so that, that's the first phase of operations is, you know, retrieving those logistics and get both those vehicles up and running and stocked, at least for the first half of the mission. But once we retrieved all those logistics, then we can enter in this exploration phase. So on the rover, they would rove out into the field, do remote exploration, um, spend at least eight hours a day exploring, doing as many quick EVAs since they have a suit port and they operate at a lower pressure. They can get in and out of that vehicle very quickly, um, explore um, in, with collaboration with mission control um, to explore various reasons around, around the moon. Um, and while they're doing that, the habitat research crew is doing habitat research. They're doing mostly IDA research biological research, physical physics research, geologic research, um, and they may do occasionally EVAs out of the habitat. Um, since, since they may or may not have the, the unpressurized rover may or may not be there, it may be, like Jeff said, with the pressurized rover to en enable um, longer roves. Um, but if the pressurized rover, unpressurized rover is with the crew at the habitat, then they can use it to explore around the habitat sometimes as well. Uh, we know that during the mission, um, there are going to be some joint operations that are going to be required. Um, things like EVA maintenance. We know that um, from past Apollo experience um, and even the ISS experience, the, the, the gloves take a lot of wear and tear. We expect the boots to take a lot of wear and tear. So replacing those systems will be required every now and then. Um, maintenance on the, on the portable life support system will be required every now and then. And so we envision those being conducted at the habitat. Um, the, the habitat will have an airlock. We can use that airlock to ingress into that pressurized volume to do those more extensive EVA maintenance on those EVA systems. Um, in addition, midway through the mission, uh, we expect to go back out in the field and retrieve the other half of the mission's logistics to resupply the habitat um, and the pressurized rover. Um, also, notionally through the mission, we're, we're looking at a regenerative life support system in the habitat. So we're envisioning doing things like transferring waste products from the habit from the rover to the habitat, um, and use and then the habitat can then process those rest, waste uh, resources into fresh water and oxygen, which would then be transferred back to the pressurized rover for use later. So transfer of logistics between the elements, transfer of uh, waste water, and then fresh water and oxygen is also envisioned during the mission. Towards the end of the 30-ish day stay on the surface. Uh, we would then transition to a phase where we close down the systems, ready them for quiet and operations, um, and then ingress to the HLS 
to then ascend back up to the gateway um, and then the eventual return to Earth. And one thing I didn't mention here is those systems that are on the surface, um, they're, they're operated in an uncrewed fashion 365 days of the year. So with the crew's there, I just talked about the crew mission, but after the crew leaves and even before the crew arrives, we envision operating those vehicles um, either autonomously or telerobotically from the Earth um, to perform science, to perform some, um, some routine maintenance um, operations on the surface um, that we may be able to control the systems from Earth. So controlling those assets in an uncontrolled fashion um, from Earth is another key element of, of the architecture as well. That kind of gives you a, a thumbnail um, of how we envision it. Um, this is just one example of a design reference mission. Uh, we're, we envision there are going to be other ones. Uh, for instance, maybe not all four crew go to the surface to remain in orbit. Um, if we have a, um, an operation where we want to then just do, do less on the Mars simulation aspect and go straight to sustainability to the, to the moon, we wouldn't dwell in, in uh, lunar orbit. We go, you know, straight to the surface. For example, um, don't do those zero g conditioning type aspects. So there are other other reference missions we know that we're going to dial in. Um, but this kind of gives you an idea of us, you know, trying to trying to facilitate a robust architecture where we can do lots of different types of exploration strategies to both explore the moon as well as improve concepts for Mars. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Next week, we'll have episode two of our limited series, Doing Business in the Solar System, with Elizabeth Howell. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Economy Space, to contact us, or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you.